Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us once again, guys. Yeah, this is take two for us because we fucked up the last one. Hang on, um, we? Or, yeah, sorry. Uh, more accurately, I did. <laughs> um, so we recorded the whole thing and then I realised that my part of the recording didn't quite work. So um, so here we go again. So um, poor Bethan has had to go through this uh, once again, <laughs> but... Um, hey ho! There's lots of Japanese pronunciations in it, so I'm sure they'll be even better this time. Mm, we'll see. Um, but they were pretty good last time. Um, before we get cracking with the episode, then let's thank our most recent Patreon supporters who have signed up over the course of the last week. We have Hannah Gettings, Charles Somerville, Marge Tonney, Joanne Offord, Bindi Marshall, Andrea Slight. Rachel Anderson and Eliza Batchelor. Um, loads of you actually and uh, it was the same the last couple of weeks it just blows us away when so many of you take the time to find us on Patreon and then to sign up and support the show. So I hope you guys are enjoying the bonus content and you too can enjoy it if you're not already a patron of the show. You can just head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast and you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. It is really amazing to sort of hear all those names and, and to thank you all personally. So thank you so much. And we do have our competition at the moment as well. So um, anybody who's a Patreon supporter as at the end of this month um, will be in with a chance of winning that as well, which is really exciting. And the prize for this competition is Mitzi Soretto's new book, The Best New True Crime Stories. So well worth winning. I've been I've been reading my copy and it's great. Okay, so as I said, it's Bethan's turn once again uh, for the second time in a couple <laughs> of days uh, to regale us with a case. And uh, I know last week um, I said that hopefully we'd have a bit of a change of pace and it would be a less brutal episode because we had the murder of a baby last week um, and Bethan said at the end of that episode that unfortunately no it's going to be uh, very brutal still so um, so it is isn't it uh, it's a, a case that's set in Japan but um, but yeah take it away. Yeah it's it might be a case that our listeners have heard of but I'm kind of hoping that it isn't because the mystery is so intriguing and you were just as shocked when you first heard about this, weren't you, as I was when I first heard about it? Yeah, I was shocked by the nature of the violence and the crime, which mm. of course you'll come on to. But I was also shocked by the fact that I'd just not heard about it before. Yeah. And it involves a, a family and it's just so tragic. And you would think that it would have been a bigger story than potentially it was. The thing that I found quite interesting with this as well is it's kind of a bit of a nod to our first ever episode because it's an unsolved murder and there's a number of theories so um, I'm going to enjoy kind of going through some of those and seeing what your thoughts are and hearing what our listeners thoughts are on the theories about what happened. The Mayasawa family lived in the Kamisoshigaya neighbourhood of Setagaya which is situated in the western suburbs of Tokyo. And while Tokyo is one of the largest and busiest cities in the world, Setagaya is a really peaceful area which looks like it's out in the countryside, not in the city. It has been described as reclusive and quiet. In the early 1990s, 200 houses were built along the boundary on the edge of a municipal park. This idyllic area was filled with families and the acres of parkland was interspersed with tennis courts, a playground for smaller children and a skate park for the teenagers. To the side of this was the River Sen. And then over the next 10 years, the houses were bought back by the municipality and turned into more parkland. By the year 2000, when our story is set, only four houses remained. 
One of these homes was the one belonging to the Mayazawa family and two others were occupied. And whilst the two houses opposite their home were not too far away, the detached family house, which stood alone, must have felt reasonably isolated. Japan is known as one of the most peaceful countries in the entire world, and it has been reported that in 2015, crime in Japan fell to a real low with not even a thousand homicides in the year. So this is despite a population of almost 130 million. So for context, I looked at the same year in the UK. We have a population of just under 67 million and we had 764 homicides. So I inflated the figures to kind of give the UK the population size equal to Japan. And this gave us just under 1500 homicides. So then what I thought to myself was like, where's somewhere dangerous that I would think of and so I decided to do it for Chicago. So inflating these figures it equated to 21 and a half thousand homicides compared with Japan's not even a thousand. Isn't that absolutely crazy? Basically Chicago has got 21, 22 times the level of homicides as Japan has. Yeah. God I mean I knew Chicago was quite violent in some corners not all of it's like that of course but Um, But that is quite shocking. But then we are also comparing Chicago to a country that is known really for being more peaceful than most countries in in the rest of the world, I guess. Exactly. And it is a peaceful place, but of course there is still crime. However, in general, their crimes tend to be to do with theft. Um, Even crimes of that nature seem to be reducing. However, that being said, as a huge city, Tokyo does have a large police force. And in fact, Tokyo Metropolitan Police Force is the biggest in the world. And it's estimated that 250,000 police staff have worked on the Mayazawa family's case at some point since New Year's Eve 2000, amassing over 12,000 pieces of evidence and leads. And yet somehow this case remains unsolved to this day. And I think that was what really shocked you with this, wasn't it? It's still unsolved. It It is. And, and when you also think the amount of hours, hundreds of thousands of hours they've thrown at this, all of that resource, all of that time where I know you'll come on to it again, but they still have a significant number of officers working on this case full time 20 years later, and it still remains unsolved. It's just... It really is mind-blowing, isn't it? It is. I don't want to jump ahead too much, so on to the family in question. And I've not really done this before, but this time with my script, I actually included a picture of the family from Mark so that he could look at them as I was describing them. And and it, it's an unusual move for us, but I think you quite liked it, didn't you? I did love it, yeah, because um, sometimes we, we cover cases that both of us would know anyway, so you can picture the victims and sometimes the perpetrator in your mind. But with, with some cases like this one that I wasn't familiar with, to see this family, and they are just, they're a very normal family, and the two children in the family, they're very young, um, but they're just, it's just, a they are a beautiful family, aren't they? And I think it just really brings home the juxtaposition between this calm, loving family and then the the scene that you'll go on to paint in terms of what happened on on that night in, in 2000. Yeah, so obviously there'll be pictures on social media for you guys prior to the episode and then also afterwards as well. But there was the 44-year-old dad called Mikio and he was a slim guy who wore glasses, he had a beard. He worked in an office for a company called Interbrand, which is a marketing company for corporate identity development. 
At school, he loved theatre and animation. And he basically used part of the first floor of the house as his study. He worked really hard, but he lived humbly. And then there was his 41-year-old wife, Yasuko, who was a teacher. Apparently, she was a nice teacher, but someone who didn't let the students get away with much. And the pair do just look like a really normal mum and dad. Photos of the family show them looking relaxed. And I know this is just a glance into their world. But by all accounts, they were a regular family unit who loved each other. And they look it. You can see that love coming through that photo. Mm hmm. I think so. So as well as mum and dad, there were the two children. So there was eight-year-old Nina and six-year-old Ray. Nina was a clever young girl. She was eight years old, but a year ahead of her schoolwork. She loved ballet and she was learning how to play the piano. Six-year-old Ray had a learning disability, but apparently he wasn't treated any differently. Um, Reports have said that he was never shown any less love than his sister. And by all accounts, it was an incredibly happy home. The kids were close to their paternal grandmother, Setsuko, and equally close to their maternal grandmother too. And in a similar note to our Pottery Cottage episodes, the family shared the building with the other members of the family. So half the house was the Mayasawa family's home. The other half was occupied by Yasuko's mum and sister. So the kids' maternal grandma basically lived next door. Which I think is a lovely way of living isn't it to have I think so not everybody would want that but I think to have an extended family uh, on your doorstep I think is a really amazing thing to a a real real privilege really Mm. so there's no internal entry or passageway between the two houses or any doors or anything Um, so it's two separate homes but attached in the same building Um, The family were really close and Yasuko's mum, Haruko, would actually call her daughter most mornings just for a chat. And this is just what she did on the morning of Sunday, December the 31st in the year 2000. But strangely, the phone call wouldn't go through. And by 10am, when she still hadn't seen or heard from Yasuko or the rest of the family, she began to worry. After repeatedly knocking at the door, but to no avail, Yasuko's mother used her key to let herself into the house. And the sight that she came across must have been absolutely heartbreaking. Making her way across the living area, the old lady could see her son-in-law was dead, led at the bottom of the stairs. She then bravely climbed the stairs and at the top she found her daughter and her granddaughter. She briefly touched them to check but they were dead also. And with a heavy heart she checked Ray's bed. Her grandson was dead too in his bed and she rushed back out of the house to go and call the police. I thought it would probably be quite helpful here to try and describe the layout of the home so you can try and picture where people were and how they ended up. And because the layout of the house made things tricky to kind of decipher, the police actually created a model of the house with loads of detail that would assist with their investigations, but was also available for the media. This is available online and I am going to pop some pictures up online. And there's a really, really good blog post that I use. So I'm going to put a link to that um, when I was doing my research. And I think that's such a Japanese thing to do, isn't it? It really is, isn't it? Yeah, to create a scale model of the house and then release it to the media. I think it's a really innovative way of trying to get across to people at home that might have had leads and information and to the police that are investigating it exactly what the sequence of events could have looked like, even though they wouldn't have necessarily known for definite. Yeah, that's it exactly. And I just think it's so um it's such a good idea and I think it, it would come in handy for a lot of cases really. It's better than just a drawing. An artist's impression. An artist's impression. 
So on the ground floor, the building's split into two. So there's two different front doors. There's nothing connecting the two homes. So one half is the grandmother and the sister, and then the other half is the Mayazawa family. So that's why the grandmother had to go to the front door. Um, so Yusuko's mum, Haruko, had come into the Mayazawa family's half of the home and walked through a lounge sort of living area. And at the end of this was Makio at the bottom of the stairs. And on this level, this ground floor, there was also a kitchen. And then the stairs go up with a turn in the middle. And then the next landing area for the second floor was where the mum and daughter were led. And on this floor was the bedroom in which Ray slept. And I believe it was Ray and Nina's bedroom. And then the house had a third floor, which is accessible via a ladder. And I'm pretty sure that this is the parents' bedroom, kind of based on this model. And what follows is what probably happened in the home the night before, although obviously nothing's for definite because no one knows for sure. The new year is a really big deal in Japan. This was the 30th of December in the year 2000, so they would have been in really good spirits, feeling festive. The family went out for the day, going shopping as a group, and that evening they had dinner together. Yasuko phoned her mum at 7pm and they spoke for a while and Nina was watching a show online until at least 9.38pm and Mikio was working on his laptop downstairs. At 10.38pm he opened a password protected email from work and Ray was in bed on the second floor of the property. So it seems like Ray's in bed on the second floor, dad's downstairs and I'm pretty sure the mum and Nina were both watching TV up in the top bedroom. Um, otherwise I'm not really certain where Nina was at the time I think that's where she was an unknown intruder cut the phone lines to the house and then around 11:30 p.m climbed the fence that was backing into the house and entered through the bathroom window the tree alongside the fence had broken branches and investigators have stated that this would not have been an easy task the intruder must have been quite fit and agile The window wasn't exactly hidden and in the daytime it was quite exposed but this was late at night and the pitch darkness would have meant that the intruder wasn't easily seen. There is a path behind the house that leads to the park but unless someone was directly there at the same time this intruder would have been able to make his way in unnoticed. Around the same sort of time as this an eyewitness walking by the park said that they heard the sounds of what they thought was a family argument coming from the Mayazawa house. The intruder, having snuck into the home, first strangled six-year-old Ray while he slept. His body was discovered still in his bed the next day when the police were alerted. So it seems like Nina has disturbed the intruder and then been attacked, but not injured too badly. And Mikio, the father, rushed up to the stairs hearing those noises and wondering what was going on. Mikio was then attacked by the intruder while Nina ran up the ladder to her mum. So the intruder was armed with a sashimi knife, which is a type of knife with a single beveled edge designed specifically for cutting fish. And I had a look at them online and they look vicious. The struggle between Mikio and the intruder was really violent. And during this, Mikio was stabbed over and over again before he fell down the stairs. And one of the stabs was so ferocious and savage that the knife actually broke and a piece of it was lodged inside Mikio's head. And the killer was also injured too during all of this. As Mikio's lifeless body landed in a heap at the bottom of the stairs, the intruder also made his way, bleeding profusely downstairs into the kitchen. So it's been theorised, and I have to say I agree here, that Yusuko believed the killer was fleeing the house because he headed downstairs. So she and Nina were coming down the ladder to check on their family members. Nina's blood was discovered in that top room so she must have been cut by the assailant and then gone up to her mum and then the pair came back down. 
it seems like the only genuine reason that you would come back down, doesn't it? As they came downstairs, however, they came face to face with the attacker again. This time he was holding a new knife, a large one from their kitchen. He wasn't fleeing the property at all. He was going downstairs to simply replace his broken weapon. Can you imagine the sheer terror for them Mm -hmm. Um, coming downstairs thinking that that ordeal, as horrific as it is, is over and then to be confronted with their attacker knowing that he's still in the house and he's got another knife, knowing what's going to happen to you, they would have known at that point. Mm -hmm. And somehow the attack on the mother and daughter was even more frantic and ferocious than the one on the father and husband. So perhaps this is because the attacker had two victims in front of him. Perhaps they were the intended targets of this entire attack. Perhaps the attacker had issues with women. Whatever the reason, having used both the broken sashimi knife and the large kitchen knife on them, within minutes the mother and daughter also lay lifeless on the landing. So the general consensus is that Ray was killed first because otherwise he wouldn't have stayed asleep in his bed with everything going on outside his bedroom. The timeline for the others is unclear. At roughly 11.30 the grandmother heard a thud but this was the only noise that she really heard and this was probably Mikio hitting the bottom of the stairs and it shows just how fast the attack was. All four members of the family were dead in a savage and brutal attack and it appears that this happened in a matter of minutes. The killer was also injured, bleeding profusely and he made his way into the bathroom where he attended to his wounds using their first aid kit where he mopped up his blood with bandages, the family's bath towels and sanitary products, but he made no efforts to hide or destroy any of this, and some of Nina's blood was actually mixed up with the killer's blood. So you're probably expecting now that the killer fled the home, but no, he stayed there for a minimum of two hours, but potentially ten hours in the house, with the family laying there dead from the wounds that he had inflicted. In her initial statements to the police, the grandmother, Haruko, stated that the front door was locked and she'd used her key to enter, but in later years she doubted her memory and she wondered whether it had been unlocked. Either way, this probably doesn't make much of a difference because the police think the attacker left the house by the same window that he entered and their conclusions came from footprints they found. It also means that her statement kind of shed some doubt on the killer's time of departure. It was always assumed he'd stayed until around 10am as the computer showed usage at this point, but then Yusuko's mum admitted that she may have banged the mouse as she walked through the house, and this may have registered the second use. Some articles have said that the computer cable was stolen or unplugged, Um, so nobody knows for sure, but it could well be that the killer was still in the house and he only fled when he heard her knocking. That's a really disturbing thought to have, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, one, that he was there for so long but to the, she, he was there when, when the grandmother was knocking on the door. He was actually inside. Yeah, potentially. Basking in that orgy of bloodletting. Either way, he definitely stayed until gone half one in the morning. So he made himself at home as well. He drank barley tea. He ate melon and ice cream from the family's fridge freezer. He took a nap on their sofa, he used their computer, and between the hours of midnight and 1am, he was checking out websites they had bookmarked, looking at the employers of both Mikio and Yasuko, and even at one point he attempted to purchase theatre tickets with their bank card, trying to guess the security pin. He spent time ransacking the home, trawling through their personal documents, their ID, their receipts and their bank statements. And to add to the insulting behaviour of this killer, he used the toilet and he didn't flush. 
Now, obviously, I've heard this before because uh, this is the second time that you've had to go through it, but that is just a new level, a new low. We've had people drinking their own piss. Um, but this, I don't know. I just think the murderer of an entire family, one, staying in the house and um, using all of their facilities and eating their food is beyond disturbing as it is. But to then defecate in the family home, I think psychologically it almost says something, doesn't it? But I don't know what that is, but it must it must mean something. Yeah, it's just gross, isn't it? It's yeah, just... it's fucking disgusting. And the police actually were able to determine what the killer had eaten recently Ugh. from identifying these remains. That um, is disgusting. And the meal included string beans and sesame seeds and was described as the sort of wholesome meal your mum would cook for you. So some detectives believed that the killer lived at home still and a neatly ironed handkerchief was another suggestion that perhaps he lived with his mum. The police were able to find out where the clothes and sashimi knife left behind by the killer had been purchased. For example, only 130 units of the killer's sweater were made and sold. However, they've only been able to track down 12 of the people who bought one. Tokyo police found the killer's DNA and fingerprints in the Mayazawa's house, but none matched the databases of Tokyo police, indicating that they didn't have a criminal record. They had so much of the killer's blood available, they were able to create a description using this as well. So DNA analysis of the Taipei blood determined that the killer was male and possibly mixed race. So his maternal DNA indicated a mum who had somewhere in her descent European blood and that the killer's dad was a father of East Asian descent. But the marker was one that appeared in one in four or five Koreans, one in 10 Chinese and one in 13 Japanese. So the killer may not have even been a Japanese citizen. They just, they had all of this information but it was almost pointing them in lots of different areas. Yeah, I mean, really, that's that's not narrowing it down enough, is it? It's really not, is it? And so the police got law enforcement from outside involved as well. They also believed that the killer was around 170 centimetres tall, of thin build, and they said he was born between 1965 and 1985. So he was 15 to 35 years old at the time of the incident. And this then fit in with their other idea that they believed he lived at home. The killer left behind a bum bag, or for our American listeners, a fanny pack. And this contained trace amounts of sand, indicating that he spent a lot of time outside. And then the sand was linked as sand likely to come from the Nevada desert, more specifically the area of Edwards Air Force Base in California. They also had indication from the wounds that the killer was right-handed. And distinctive shoe prints indicated that at the very least he had some ties to the Korean peninsula, but I cannot find any information online about why that would be. The police had so much information on this killer and one thing they didn't even need to guess at was what he was wearing when he went to the Mayazawa's house before breaking in because he had taken off his clothes and then folded them neatly to leave there. He'd also left his shoes, the bum bag, his hat, scarf, jacket and gloves. The only item of Makio's known to have been taken was an old jacket so Lord knows what he'd fled in. Did he bring a change of clothes so he could get home without arousing suspicions of his mum? The clothing was similar in a style worn by young skaters in Tokyo at the time, like the ones that would have visited the skate park behind the family house. But was this because that was the way this killer dressed normally? Or did they wear these clothes to almost throw people off the scent? Who knows? 
So why was this entire family so brutally murdered by a killer who left behind so much evidence? A killer who, instead of being sick at his actions, instead worked up an appetite. A killer who chilled at the home of his victims and even took a nap. Well, we don't know, and hopefully one day the truth will come out, but there are a number of theories. And before we go on to those theories, we'll have a quick word from one of our advertisers for the episode. So on to the theories, Mark. Something that sounds a bit strange on the surface, but I didn't think was too weird, however you weren't sure, was that on the 25th of December, Yasuko complained to her dad that someone had been parking outside their house repeatedly, and she said it was odd because there was plenty of other parking available. And on the 27th of December, a witness reported seeing a middle-aged man walking around the perimeter of the house, studying it. Nothing has come of this, and whilst, to be honest, it is annoying when someone parks outside your home, it might not have been anything more than just someone wanted to park their car, and the four homes were the last four left from those huge changes that had occurred in the area, so for me there's the chance that that person casing the home was just interested in the history of the area, but you're not convinced by that, are you? No, I... I really don't think somebody would... I mean, I don't know, maybe Japanese culture is very different to our own and everybody's different, aren't they? So lots of people have lots of different interests. But I just think, really, would would somebody really be parking up outside the house because they're interested in in the history? Although there is some really interesting history there. I just thought, no, I don't really buy that. Um, and I think it probably, as annoying as it is, like you said, I think it probably was just somebody parking outside the house and I think it is interesting when people do that because people do it where I live and I don't know why but you almost feel like you've been violated when somebody dares to park on a public road outside of your house even though they absolutely have a right to do that it just is one of those things particularly in our culture in Britain that really pisses us off interesting isn't it and in my street nobody has allocated parking but there's like the same cars will generally park in the same spot. The space that I park in isn't opposite my house or has no relation to me. But oh my God, if someone's in my space, oh, it feels weird. Even I know where to park when I come to yours. Even though it's like you say, it's nowhere really near your house. I know where I can and can't park and woe woe betide me if I ever deign to park in in a space that, that wasn't you know really designated as yours even though like you said none of them are designated to the adjacent houses yeah it's weird it's so ridiculous isn't it it is ridiculous yeah another um sort of link with this another track that the kind of police went down was that on the 29th of december a young man wearing clothes like those that the killer wore was seen at Seijoke Kanmei Station around a mile from Soshigaya Park and police later traced this sashimi knife to a purchase on this day to that shopping mall and it was a shopping mall by the station that the Mayazawa family also shopped at during the late afternoon the next day on the 30th of December and then on the same day the same man was seen at Sengawa another station within a couple of miles of the park so this guy is seen at the same place as where the knife was bought, or potentially the knife, but a purchase of the knife knife was made, and that family was there as well. So did the killer spot the family at the shopping centre and follow them home? I don't know how the family travelled around the city, but it could work. I think I think this is, um, I know we discussed it last time, and I, I can't really remember, I think maybe I dismissed this a little bit, but hearing it again, I actually think this is quite credible because 
how many people would be buying those knives in that area. And I think that is very coincidental that one of those sashimi knives was bought 24 hours before the family were butchered with that type of knife. That that knife was bought probably a mile or two from their home the day before. So I think whoever bought that knife on the 29th of December most probably was the murderer. Was it this young man that was seen wandering around? It could be, it might not be. Um, but I do think that that knife, that purchase of that knife on the 29th of December was the knife that went on to be used on that family. And I think when we talk about um, the fact that there's there's loads of theories about this, but there's no real motive that anyone can definitively give. And when we talk about motiveless crimes, which I know you're obsessed with, there is this chilling idea that somebody saw this family and just thought, this is what, that's my intended target, my intended victim at random. I mean, that is terrifying. Yeah, I think I think the reason why a motiveless murder bothers me so much is because I'm I'm really not trying to victim blame, but sometimes we can work in professions or put ourselves in situations that put us in more more danger. And um with a motiveless murder it really means that none of us is exempt from being a victim because you can do everything within your power to mitigate the risk um, to you. So not walking through a dark cemetery at two o'clock in the morning or not being a sex worker. I, I can say that. That's a dangerous profession to be in. So you can do all these things to mitigate your risk, but you can still be the victim of a brutal crime like this. So I like to think I lead my life in a, um, a sort of careful way, but um, really, is that actually going to have any impact on on my own safety? Possibly not. When you've got lunatics like this guy out there that has potentially just seen a family and preyed upon them and, and targeted them for no other reason than they happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, and it just could be that that disturbed sort of person. Absolutely. Another theory is that this was a robbery gone wrong. The municipal authorities planned on expanding a nearby park and each family in the area was offered up to 100 million yen to move. And it is suspected that the killer did flee with cash, but the killer took about $1,000 equivalent and more cash was left behind. And the murders appear to be coldly premeditated rather than a spur of the moment decision as part of being caught robbing the house. So this probably wasn't the main motive for slaying this entire family. I can't see that being you know, a robbery gone wrong just seems very strange when he purposefully killed the young boy straight away to almost start this whole savage attack. Yeah, this, this, there's no, I just, I think opportunistically, yes, the killer's seen some money and taken it. Was that the main motive of, of this, the slaying of, of four innocent people? No. no. There's no way in hell that the motive of this quadruple murder was a $1,000. Yeah. And whilst Japan is known for its restrictive immigration, the country has got a problem with illegal immigration, and most of it comes from Northeast and South Asia since the 1980s. So it is possible that the killer was an illegal immigrant or a drifter who had committed crimes like this in multiple countries. But we kind of talked about the idea that Tokyo police will have reached out to external police forces. This is such... Yeah a distinctive crime that they would have surely found somebody who had done something similar. 
Yeah, I mean, I I don't know how it works in um, Southeast Asia, but I know in Europe, for example, we have Interpol. So um, that's a, a unification of national police forces that would link up and share information, which is very easy to do. So I'm sure that there would be something in Asia that would enable different police forces in different countries to share information. And because this murder was so unique, I find it really hard in a 20-year period that another similar murder didn't come up in another country. So, yes, this could have been an, an illegal immigrant. It could have been somebody that moved abroad after because, of course, there is the real um, problem for me. The problem is that it's very unlikely that a killer would commit this murder, um, a quadruple murder, so bloody and violent, and then not go on to do something again, um, which it appears that there's nothing similar enough in Japan um, so that does bother me. But yeah, I think whilst it's plausible, he then went to another country and did something similar. Again, I don't really buy it because I think that would have come up uh, through their equivalent of Interpol. Yeah, or even through people doing their research on this case and you're Googling things because yeah. it will come up with linked articles that sound similar and that sort of thing. So it seems un- unlikely, but then so much to yeah. this case seems unlikely or un like not part of the theories that you'd want to follow. The clothing seemed to point to local skater kids, and I will go into this in a bit more detail shortly, but the clothes also point to a more dangerous group, so a gang of bikers, and there was a young member of a gang that the police thought could have been the perpetrator at one point. It has been said that Mikio actually confronted this biker gang about them hanging out there, making too much noise and being a nuisance. But this particular trail was a dead end, and I can't find out much about the police kind of looking into this person when I look online. And I also think that w- with these biker gangs, they a lot of them have such a reputation that it's almost like an easy option, isn't it? To, mm-hmm. to link the murderer to a biker gang and, oh, that's easy, that's solved it. Because all members of biker gangs are murderers and what have you. So I think it's a nice story, um, but I don't think that's plausible. And the sand in the bum bag that linked to Edwards Air Force Base in Nevada led the police to look at whether the killer was in the Air Force, especially because the US has ties with South Korea and the killer's blood showed some DNA with potentially a Korean link. If the killer had been in the Air Force, they may have moved often between Edwards Air Base and Yokota Air Base, which was only 12 miles from the Miyazawa's house. And there was evidence on the clothing that it pointed to being it washed in water common in South Korea but not common in Japan we know the military expect clothing to be folded neatly and ironed well which the hanky was some reports showed a chemical was also discovered in the garage of the house and it's a chemical found in complex electronic circuits and in the development of ceramics that are used in sonar equipment but this chemical is kind of just a bit of an odd clue it has no real answers attached and there's no other indication that the killer ever entered the garage unless he had cased the house prior the main issue i have with this theory is if you're in the air force i would have thought that your dna or your fingerprints or something about you would be on file with the military and there were fingerprints found at the home but do you know what i'm thinking now because i do agree with that but i wonder if the killer was the son of somebody that was in the um, US Air Force or 
um, the US Army or the South Korean Army that had been working in America. The whole family had moved over there that then moved maybe to South Korea that then moved on to Japan. So maybe it was the son of um, of somebody that was in the Air Force or the Army. Yes, yeah, so somebody who's serving and that would make sense for like the clothing to be washed in a certain way, but also to still be living at home with your parents. That's yeah. really interesting, definitely. Because I think, I think that rigid mentality a regimented way of life is really instilled in those families from the father who would be the acting serviceman um so i think even though the the uh, say for in this case it could be a teenage son even though he's not in the army or the air force he would still be the type of person that would make his bed in a particular way and fold his clothes in a particular way because that would have been the way of life that he would have grown up with yeah, that's really interesting. I definitely think you're onto something with that. And I think a father that can be so overbearing in that situation can, let's be honest, can produce a son that needs an outlet, needs to gain some control away from the family home. And that control could have been gained by holding this family to ransom and then killing them. I really like that theory. And I think it. I think it then also helps with the fact that potentially... They've then done this sort of crime somewhere else because if you're in the Air Force, you're going to move around in your life. So I think that's really interesting. The police were sure that the violence inflicted on the female members of the family pointed to someone who hated women. Um, I'm not sure. I think it's probably more to do with the fact that the killer had two people in front of him and was almost um, worked up by the initial killing of Mikio. But it, it could be someone who's against women for whatever reason the police also suggested that it could point to an infatuated person so any regular visitor to the park would have seen Yasuko and known where she lived but there's no indication that she ever reported being followed or was watched and if it was someone who was infatuated would this really be a stalker's first action I don't really buy that no I think it's unlikely I think it's possible anything's possible I do think that I think the skate park at the back of the house is key to this um but I don't think it was an infatuation with the mum um or any member of the family for that matter but I do think that probably it was a kid who used the skate park at the back of the house that kid then could have had links to the army or the air force and as I said was maybe looking to gain some element of control outside the family home and that's how he did it I love this theory of yours because for me, the theory that fits best is a skater from the skate park. Um, but you've kind of really brought that to a more tangible, like brought it to life almost as a theory. Um, there was a skate park, like we mentioned a couple of times, behind the Miyazawa home. And in the bum bag that they found was a roll of skateboard grip tape. The clothes looked like the style that skaters were wearing. And they do look like that to me as well. Not that I'm an expert. And the age fits, as does the idea that they would live at home. And prior to the murders, Mikio had been involved in several heated arguments with the skateboarders. So he'd tell them off for making noise. He'd tell them off for disturbing his peaceful family time. It would make more sense for them to respond with something like graffiti or egging the house. I don't know, letting down tyres, generic intimidation. And this is such a horrific act of violence The killer would have had to have been predisposed to violence to suddenly behave this way. And so therefore, whilst it is my theory of choice, it's not 100% for me. 
It's not, but I do think the killer could have been predisposed to that level of violence. So we could have been dealing with somebody that was completely unhinged here. So just this man, this authority figure, um, telling him what he could and couldn't do was enough for him to seek revenge on this man that perhaps came to represent his own father and then the whole family were collateral damage. I just, again, kind of go back to the idea that how is this this person's first and only crime? And then again, it fits in with this potential of being a military family, maybe moving around. Really interests me, actually. I think the only other thing I just really wanted to say is the nature of the killings. And I know we'll probably talk a little bit more about the fact that the perpetrator stayed in, in the family's home for some time. But I think the nature of the killings and what the killer did afterwards, so eating food and defecating in the home and not flushing the toilet, it's there's almost a level of real immaturity there, isn't there? Mm-hmm. So, so Agreed. I really, I could really see this being uh, a sort of eighteen, twenty year old that still lived at home with mum and dad, um, and I think we might not cover it actually again separately. So what I would also say is when we talk about the killer being in the family's home for a number of hours, it could be very likely that he was there until the morning so that when he went home, it was a normal time to return home. So if he'd returned home at two o'clock in the morning, that could have raised suspicion within his family. Whereas if he was there until, say, 10am, he then goes back home and his story, perhaps to his mum and dad that he'd stayed at a friend's house, would be more plausible than if he had been out and returned at 2, 3 in the morning. Yeah, completely agree. And I think that kind of fits with leaving the clothes there, taking some sort of change of clothes so that you then don't look suspicious to your mum. Yeah. And especially if you live at home and in this scenario because I mean the Japanese police were calling him a mama's boy and in the press he was described as a mama's boy but your mum's going to do your laundry for you you don't want her finding bloodstains on your clothes so no completely agree there were a few leads for the police so firstly a cab driver reported a really strange encounter that night he picked up a fare um, three men in total and all of them were above the age of 30 none of them spoke during their drive and on their departure they left traces of blood in the back of the car but this is a bit of a dead end as well because whether the police were able to get samples of this blood isn't known and they haven't really made the results public at all but it could be that there was the three people one of them committed the crime and then the other two were party to it It's a bit of a weird one because it's that night, so it means that the killer didn't stay that long, but could well be. I find that a potential, but for me, I think for three people to keep a secret for 20 years is highly unlikely. I, I think if three people were involved in this, even if only one of them went into the house to commit the murders, I think that the three would have known what had happened, and I think it would have come out since. Definitely. The next morning on the 31st of December, a man in his 30s visited a medical centre at Tobu Niko Station, which is 75 miles north of Sosugaya Park, and he was treated for a knife wound deep enough to see bone. Unfortunately, this goes no further either because staff didn't press him as to how it happened. Um, He didn't leave his name and he simply disappeared after his treatment. Sounds pretty much like it's him though, doesn't it? 
It does. It really does with the nature of that wound. But if you look in a 75 mile radius of this area on any typical day, how many people would present themselves at a clinic or a hospital with a wound that you could say could have been inflicted during uh, an encounter as as you know, happened on on the 30th of December in 2000. So I don't know, but it does. I mean, it really does not sound good. That does sound like the kind of wound that would be inflicted when somebody is literally fighting for their life and there's a knife being thrown all over the place. NHK, a Japanese broadcaster, released an article in March 2001 which talked about a lead that doesn't really come up anywhere else and this was that a woman driving past the park around dawn on the 31st of December had a man jump out in front of her car. She stopped and didn't run him over, got out to speak to him and check on him. She noticed that he had a bloody hand and he left so she reported it to the police but she didn't give her name and the police appealed for her to get back in touch but I don't think she ever did from the fact that it's never really been publicised anywhere else. And a true crime author called Fumiya Ichibashi wrote a book in which he said he solved the case, saying the suspect's fingerprints are a match. He works for the Korean military, and this author claimed that the suspect was hired by a real estate developer, um, but the family were actually planning to take the money to move, so would a real estate developer really want to have them killed? The theory kind of goes around the fact that they weren't willing to move. So what they thought was if there was a murder, nobody would want to buy the house anyway. So not only have you got rid of the the people who live at the house, but you're also getting rid of the option of people wanting to buy the property. So you've got the land cleared for your development. But yeah, the family were planning to take the money to move out um, within a few months. I think they were moving at the beginning of the of the new year. So it's just a bit of a an odd theory, really. But he's published it's, this book, and yeah, it's all a bit murder. She wrote for me that mm. it's a bit, you know, real estate developer turns to murder so that he can expand, uh, you know, an area for for financial gain. I just, I don't, I don't think it's plausible anyway. But then, with what you've said, i.e., the family were actually going to move anyway. It it makes that a moot point, doesn't it? And really, not having to go high- with you. Thank not having you. to go with you, Beth. Good. And if you're hiring um, a killer to do a job, is that person who's a professional really going to hang out, have some food, um, You leave all his DNA and stuff? No. no. This is not a professional job? No. What struck me with this case was just how many people the murders affected. When the children's paternal grandmother, Setsuko, found out what had happened, she said she blanked out with shock and she has a shrine in her house to the family, keeping the kids' toys on display in a cabinet and praying for the family. She said, I always wonder how they would have grown up. My biggest regret is that I never got to see them grow up. And she still can't remember the family's funerals because she was so traumatised she couldn't walk and had to be carried inside. The police gather at the house near the park on the anniversary of the murders to pay respects to this family and some of those police are serving members of the force and others have retired but can't forget that case and the killer that they didn't catch yet. One of the retired policemen was Takeshi Shusida and at the time he was the chief of the police and was designated as the person in charge of the investigation from that point until his retirement and he still unofficially investigates the murders even though he's now in his 70s and has been retired for over a decade he visits the scene regularly to stay familiar with the details he also goes and visits um setsuko as well and goes and prays with her which i just thought was so touching 
And it's not just him. In 2015, there were 40 officers still assigned to this case. And in 2019, it was reported there were 35 officers still working on it. Police still hand out flyers about the events of that terrible night. And Superintendent Ide, who took over the case, has said in reports the investigators would love to help the victims rest in peace, saying it's an atrocious case rarely seen in Japan's criminal history. And we think solving this case will help to prevent similar crimes happening in the future. It's just so touching, isn't it? Just how these police officers are just, they wish that they could solve this. But you just feel for them, don't you? That they, they don't get to do that. They haven't had a chance to, even with all of this information they have. So there we go. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. Please let us know your theories as well. Who do you think was responsible? So whilst it's probably quite hard to be specific and come up with a name, uh, what do we think the circumstances were of the killer? What do we think the motive was as well? Um, So yeah, please get in touch in all the usual ways. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can also comment on uh, YouTube because we'll upload it uh, to YouTube as well. And also, if you're a patron of the show, please do um, comment under the um, upload of the patron episode as well. Yeah, we'd love to know your theories. And thank you, Mark, for your theory. I found that really interesting. And it's definitely opened up the avenue that I personally would follow with this case. So, yeah, really, really interesting. Yeah, good. So, until next time, we will see you then. See you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.